Welcome to this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna, listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. Got some great features for you this month, so let's jump right in to beer news. This year's Kenai Peninsula Beer Festival was a big success. Some 23 breweries and wineries were in attendance on Saturday, August 12th at the Soldatna Sports Center. Even the weather cooperated with rain clouds clearing away as the festival got underway. A new brewery is under construction in Anchorage. Ship Creek Brewing will be located at 5801 Arctic Boulevard. Construction work is underway, and the brewery will serve pizza using an oven from Italy. This year's Capital Brewfest will be held on September 30th outdoors at the Subport downtown in Juneau. This event is a charity fundraiser for the Juneau Rotary. Tickets are on sale online. On Saturday, September 23rd, there will be an Oktoberfest celebration in Valdez. The festival will take place at Valdez Brewing starting at 3 p.m. Growler Bay Brewing and food vendors will also be present. On September 24th, the 6th annual Hoodoo Choo Choo train trip will take place. This train trip goes from Fairbanks to Nanana and back and provides an opportunity for sampling Hoodoo Brewing Company's finest ales and lagers, accompanied by delicious German fare crafted by the UAF Culinary Arts Program. Tickets are $212 per person and can be purchased from the Alaska Railroad Ticket Office. On September 30th, the Great Alaska Beer Train will run from Anchorage to Portage and back. The event includes six half pints of Glacier Brewhouse beer and a multi-course dinner by Glacier Brewhouse. Tickets are $201 per person and can be purchased from the Alaska Railroad Ticket Office. Be sure to purchase a ticket for the correct beer trip. The Brewers Association, the trade organization representing small and independent American craft brewers, has released the results of its mid-year survey, shedding light on the state of the craft beer industry and indicating optimism for the second half of the year. Mid-2023 survey results are on par with the 2022 annual trends, with the industry leveling out after years of growth followed by two years of unique market conditions due to COVID-19. Indicative of a maturing era for the craft beer industry, the survey reveals a low single-digit decline of negative 2% in the market. 
the active craft brewery numbers increased from 9,119 in June of 2022 to 9,336 as of June 2023. In this maturing market, explosive growth from years past has tapered out, but openings continue to slightly outpace closings, and brewers are finding success in niches where they can succeed. Stony Creek Brewhouse will be holding a brewer's dinner at Resurrection Roadhouse on Saturday, September 2nd. The dinner includes a five-course meal, complete with craft beer pairings. Call for reservations. Canada-based cannabis lifestyle and consumer packaged goods company Tilray Brands has been buying a few renowned craft breweries every year since 2020. On August 7th, it made its largest single acquisition yet by agreeing to purchase eight beer and beverage brands from Anheuser-Busch InBev. The expected sales volumes of the acquired brands will elevate Tilray Brands to the fifth largest craft beer producer in the U.S., up from the ninth, with production tripling from 4 million to 12 million cases of beer annually. I will have a feature story about this later in the program. That's it for this month's beer news. Up next, we'll have an interview with Girdwood Brewing Company. This is Drink on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. Don't forget to tune in on Sunday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. right here on KDLL 91.9 FM to catch the show Pickled Beats, where I, your host, Josie Oliva, will be playing you a curated set of music inspired by an obscure subgenre or an oddly specific theme. There's nothing worse than driving Turnigan Pass with no cell service and nothing to listen to. But now you can download your favorite KTLL programs as podcasts to take with you wherever you go, whether you're hiking the Chugach, skiing in the refuge, or just driving through a dead zone. Kenai Convo, The Evening News, Growing a Greener Kenai, and Drinking on the Last Frontier are all available on Apple Podcasts. Or visit the podcast page on kdll.org. We've got Rory Marenko of Girdwood Brewing Company, one of their brew engineers, along with his brother, Brett. Hey, Rory, how are you doing today? Excellent, Bill. Thanks for calling. Hey, thanks for coming on. So how's your summer been at Girdwood Brewing? If you're just talking about weather, it could use a little bit more sun, but uh, it's been pretty good the last few months. Other than that, it's, it's been a great summer. Lots of traffic coming through the brewery. Lots of tasty new beers we've been coming out with and uh, looking forward to the, the latter end of summer and the fall here. So so have you guys fully recovered, you know, like traffic-wise, volume-wise from uh, the pandemic? I feel like things have kind of leveled out, I guess you'd say. And that, I think that goes for the craft brewing, brewing industry in general. It's not quite the surge of the, the mid-20-teens that, that we opened during, but uh, but that's allowed us to kind of dial in our operation a little bit better and and kind of baseline some stuff so moving forward we have a better idea of what to expect each year so are you guys you're still in your summertime hours you open seven days a week we are yep we're open seven days a week um and just just knew this summer we started opening at 11 a.m and we've had two food trucks on site daily to really really try to draw in that lunch crowd and give, give people more options 
and that's been that's been working really well for us. What are your winter hours going to look like? You think at this stage, through at least through the end of um, September, we're going to maintain that 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. seven days a week hours and operations, and then we probably reevaluate then if we want to continue to open at 11 every day of the week, or if that's just something we're doing on weekends, just just kind of gauged on business. But uh, I, I anticipate that come winter time, uh, when the ski season really kicks off and we, we get that traffic down here, that we'll probably have that that lunch option available for people as well. That's cool. You guys are able to have food trucks there year round, huh? Yeah, that's that's been a you know since we opened, there's been like two or three additional food trucks that have been able to open and operate in the in the valley. We've drawn food trucks from you know, from down on the peninsula and out in the valley and, and really cool to diversify the the um, the fair here in Girdwood. So. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask, and I know some of the ones down here, it's so hard for them to operate in the winter. They just kind of shut down and, you know, pack themselves away until the temperatures warm up again. Being the, the temperate rainforest that we are here in Girdwood, it's probably a little bit better climate for them to operate in. But at the same time, there's definitely... I'd say a week or two a year where they might be regretting their decision. But <laughs> how you doing equipment wise? Have you guys brought any any new gear online recently? Yeah, we have. We um, our, our probably our most recent release is Margarita, which is a, a Gosa style beer, that, and we brewed it last year, but it was it was a little bit more towards the fall, so it didn't what didn't quite align with with um, when we wanted to have people drinking that. You know, it's it's a beer meant to be drank under the hot summer sunshine. Margarita. Mara is one of our um, taproom attendants that kind of came up with the idea and suggested that we we brew it. Um, and it's a gosa, so it's got some salt in it. So we take um, some salt from our local local salt, salt farmer, uh, Prince William Sound Sea Salt, and we add that to the beer in addition with some tangerine and some key lime to really give it that that cocktail esque feel and, and just make it a delicious you know for people that maybe even don't like beer. Or, or are on the fence about what they want to drink that day. So Cool. Sounds very interesting. Quenches your thirst and uh, gives you some electrolytes at the same time. So. so you guys are still pretty much selling your stuff there exclusively, right? If anybody wants to try your stuff, they they need to come to Girdwood. That's definitely the best place to get it. You know, most most of the outlets or most of the restaurants and, um, and bars here in Girdwood carry our beer in some fashion or another. And there's a few places in Anchorage and even all the way out to um, the Valley that we supply consistently. Kinley's in Anchorage and then Palmer Ale House out in, uh, out in Palmer. Um, we, we, those guys carry uh, No Woman, No Cryo pretty consistently okay. along with some, some other seasonals. Um, and then we've been, we've South in Anchorage carries some uh, Hippie Speedball. And um, you have to top of my head, that's, that's, I'm remembering, but there's there's a few random places that we try to keep stocked. Oh, uh, Whiskey Ramen, they're they're a new uh, new restaurant in downtown Anchorage. Oh yes, they, yeah, I've seen them. No cry on top there too. So yeah, so but strictly on draft, right? You guys are not doing any canning yet. Yeah, L- last year we were able to do some kind of later later season here um, can drops to La Bodega in Anchorage, and I think we're planning to probably do that the same thing when uh, inventory allows when we're not. You know, maxed out just with uh, providing beer across mm-hmm. the counter in the in the tap room here. So, yeah. what are you guys using per canner these days? We have that Wild Goose Gosling. Um, okay. We got picked up that right right towards the end of the pandemic. That was pretty critical timing 
for that. And we've, I think we're probably getting close to 220, 230,000 cans that we put through that thing. So it's, it's done a number for us and continues to, is to that, roll them out, you know, is that a, it's, it's not. Is that a four header? No, no, it's a, it's a one head, one single head, head can. Okay. So yeah, on a, I was gonna say on a good day we're hitting you know eight, maybe maybe nine cans per minute, but uh, but for just keeping the the tap room fridge stocked, it, it does it does a good job, has you know relatively low oxygen pickup and keeps the can fresh and delicious for the consumer. So. Any expansion plans in the near future? You guys looking to? up your production of uh to do more cans or anything you know what at this point i think we'd need a little bit more space so we're, we, we expanded just our kind of front of house the tap room and put in a little bit more cold storage back in um 2020 yeah i remember um, cold right, storage actually, was a big issue for you guys yeah yeah so that helped us and that that was uh, right around the time we got the canner too so we were able to have some can storage over there and then we we had more more space for kegs, but at this point, you know, in order to really increase our production, our package production like that through the canner, we'd definitely look at going something like you're talking like a forehead filler or something, maybe you know, significantly bigger and and uh, more robust. But but that would be, require a lot more space. So at this rate, we're we're, we're pretty comfortable where we're at, looking to just kind of get more efficient with our current operations. And well, do you have uh, if I'm just spitballing, but do you do you actually have the production capability too? Are you maxed out um, with your brew house and fermentation tanks now as well? I'm just trying to see, we, would you just need a bigger can or you would need like a whole bigger operation? Yeah, you know, realistically, like during the middle of summer when, when we're just really cranking, we probably wouldn't be able to package too much more, but but uh in in the in the more shoulder seasons or or even maybe a little bit in the wintertime we'd we'd probably be able to to fill some more, but yeah, we're, I think we produced almost about 1,250 barrels last year and we'll probably do a little bit more than that this year. 2021 was, was the biggest year for us ever. And that was, we were right around 1400 barrels. So, so that's where we could probably, if we, if we really pressed it, we could probably get closer to 1500 barrels of production. So yeah, so we're not talking like a whole lot more that we'd be able to do, but that's, you know, we, you put that in the can and that goes a little bit longer, goes a little ways. So. So you guys got any uh, anything new and interesting beside the margarita that's either out or on the horizon? We're really trying to ramp up our Oktoberfest game this year. Historically, we haven't been able to release our Oktoberfest beer until uh, you know closer to actual October, not the actual authentic start of mm-hmm. Oktoberfest, um, which is middle of September. But this year, we revamped our recipe. We're shifting. Instead of releasing a Meritzin, we're going to be coming out with a Fest beer. So that's a little bit lighter, a little bit more easy drinking. So we'll we'll come out with that, and that should come out right on um, September sixteenth, the the first day of Oktoberfest. So we're looking to have a, l- a little bit more local presence with that. Um, probably have uh, like a Stein holding comp at, at one of the local pubs, and um, and really have some some fun with the Oktoberfest celebration. Well, that's cool. That's uh, uh, the uh, style that I'm talking about this month on the the show is the Oktoberfest style. So. Uh, you listeners oh, out there, hang around, and uh, you'll get a lot of description about the beer that Rory's talking about. What else? You guys got any uh, plans to uh, jump into the barley wine game for the big fest in January? We've talked about making a barley wine. We just we just haven't committed to that yet, but uh, we'll, we'll definitely uh, represent there with our beers. I don't, I don't know that we'll have a barley wine for that. But yeah, well, you'll be one of the first to know when we when we do ramp our ramp our game up to that to that level. 
just through through the through the fall through September here, we're just we're just looking to kind of keep driving traffic down to Girdwood. I think it's going to be a really nice fall to make up for the not so great summer we've had with a lot of rain we've had. So uh, we've got a market every month of the fall on the, more or less the first Saturday, and then we've got a few different artist showcases on the, the third Thursday of each month. So we'll have some events and some uh, some fundraisers going on and stuff like that to to really keep things exciting for the customer. So. Well, we certainly appreciate you guys coming down here for the uh, Kenai Peninsula Beer Festival this month. Yeah, I missed out on that, but uh, I heard from Tim and Brett that it was a good time. So, yeah, the weather. One of, uh, one of my favorite fests after you know our, our inaugural session there. We we took home the the gold for uh, No Woman No Cryo, but yeah. uh, she hasn't repeated. But but it's still a, a, a crowd favorite. So, I can't remember. Are you guys, uh, do you guys usually come to Frozen River Fest? <laughs> we came down there one year and, and all of our kegs froze. So I think we need to revisit our, to how we're going to serve if we decide to, to get down there again in the winter. Well, we've it's got kind of the opposite the problem you have. A, that, uh, the heat's gotten a little better than it was the first year. Okay. Um, okay. It's, we're, it's we're kind of the opposite problems, problem. But uh, yeah, you guys should, uh, if you can, you should come down. It's a ridiculous amount of fun to stand around in February outside drinking beer. So Nice. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll put that on our radar. Let's see, with the new regs coming into effect in January, are you guys going to be making any kind of a move with your licensing? Or, you know, I guess you could take advantage of the four special event permits a year and the different hours. And you got any other any other plans or anything that you want to try and take advantage of with the new laws? Yeah, uh, we're, we're definitely excited. You know, it's it's been a long time coming, but uh, to finally get that across the finish line was a a huge effort by you know all the craft breweries and our, our senators and government affairs committee and and lobbyists and so, so super excited that we we have that change coming about there have been a few uh, different presentations and i tuned into one the other month just to try to sort of wrap wrap my head around all the different different changes taking place so it sounds like right now most of the changes we get an extra hour so we'll be able to stay open or serve beer until 9 p.m. with the hard close at 9:30, and that that should take effect uh, January 1st. Definitely looking forward to that one. You know, in the winter time when people get done uh, night skiing or something, if they want to swing by for a bite and a, a beer, or you know, more realistically in the summertime when it's still light out at uh, at midnight and at eight o'clock at night, people think it's still four in the afternoon. We'll, we'll have that extra hour of serving time. As far as the event stuff, it sounds like that might be a little bit delayed in implementation. But hopefully, yeah, hopefully sooner than later that comes into play. I'd be excited if by, by you know, March, which is our, our anniversary time frame and kind of spring break, if we'd have the potential to, to do something exciting then and really, really throw a proper birthday celebration type thing. Well, hey, Rory, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and update us on what's going on there. Really appreciate it and wish you guys good uh, Oktoberfest season. And I'll see you in January at the fest up in Anchorage, I'm sure. And uh, hopefully we'll see you down here in February for Frozen River Fest. Right on, Bill. It's always a, always a pleasure to chat. All righty. Well, hey, thanks a lot. You have a great day. Yeah. Cheers, man. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next segment. Just watching the bubbles in the beer. I'm going to play this thing now.
It's a road paved with heartaches and tears. I've been there before, Pete. And I'm seeing the past that I've wasted while watching the bubbles in the beer. As I mentioned in this month's beer news, the cannabis and beverage company Tilray announced on August 7th that it would acquire eight craft beer and beverage brands from Anheuser-Busch InBev, tripling Tilray's beer volume in the U.S. and expanding its manufacturing and distribution nationally. The acquired brands include six beer brands, Shock Top, Breckenridge Brewery, Blue Point Brewing Company, Ten Barrel Brewing Company, Red Hook Brewery, and Widmere Brothers Brewing, as well as Square Mile Cider Company and Highball Energy. The deal includes all employees, brewing facilities, and brew pubs. The current production volume across all these brands and locations is upwards of half a million barrels. Buying the collection for near pennies on the dollar is an incredible deal as Tilray's strategic interest in them appears to stem from the scale, synergies, and manufacturing capacity they can provide the company's broader beverage alcohol business. The added volume from the acquired breweries will make Tilray the fifth largest craft beer company in the U.S. Anheuser-Busch InBev was a willing seller as it has been winnowing its craft beer portfolio in recent years. It shuttered its most recent craft acquisition, Platform Brewing, in February after its sales plummeted and subsequently laid off a number of employees at its craft breweries and some of its centralized craft marketing staff in New York. The deal means Tilray will have a total of six production breweries across the Southeast, Northeast, and Mountain West, as well as 12 total brew pubs. Some of these very modern breweries could be used to create new alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages in the future. Tilray already owned four craft breweries. They are Atlanta-based Sweetwater Brewing, which it acquired in 2020, the San Diego-born Green Flash and Alpine brands, which it acquired from foreclosure in 2021, Colorado's Breckenridge Distillery, which it bought in 2021, and New York's Montauk Brewing, which it purchased in late 2022. This sale seems to represent an admission on the part of AB InBev that its plan to purchase regionally successful breweries and then scale them up into the national market has been a failure. Only two AB InBev craft breweries, Wicked Weed and Goose Island, saw positive volume growth in chain retail so far this year, and neither is part of the Tilray transaction. Tilray is acquiring the breweries from AB InBev for a much lower price than the brewing giant paid for them, $85 million as compared to more than $600 million. The significance of all this is that it again demonstrates the fundamental incompatibility of mega-corporate brewing and craft beer. 
In last month's feature story, I reported on how Sapporo USA had managed to run Anchor Brewing, one of the most iconic and beloved craft beer institutions in the country, into the ground, primarily due to its inability to operate within the craft beer culture. This sale demonstrates that AB InBev is equally clueless as to how to successfully manage craft beer brands. Sure, it can splash hundreds of millions of dollars around and purchase thriving craft breweries, but once it has bought them, it doesn't know how to keep them thriving. Instead, such purchases just seem to be a good way for the brewing giants to lose a lot of money. The most ironic part of this whole deal is that the brands being sold include Shock Top, a beer specifically created by Anheuser-Busch in an attempt to imitate craft beer and cash in on its success. Given its less than sterling reputation, one wonders if Tilray actually even wanted that brand or if AB InBev forced them to take it as part of the deal. Time will tell, but I, for one, will not mourn the passing of Shock Top. On the other side of the coin, it's possible that Tilray could parlay these purchases into a successful beverage portfolio. The company got its start as a cannabis company in Canada and has yet to become anything close to profitable. It reported $1.4 billion in losses for fiscal year 2023. The losses were less in the fourth quarter than they had been in the same quarter of the year prior. Critically, beverage alcohol has been a bright spot amidst the red, with sales up 33% to $93 million in fiscal year 2023. Much of this is attributable to alcohol acquisitions, indicating that Tilray is likely to keep its eye open for attractive targets in that space, especially if they are available for relative steel. Its long-term strategy looks to be to position itself to be able to take advantage of the legalization of cannabis at the U.S. federal level, assuming that happens at some point within the next decade. It seems Tilray is hoping to find legal intersections and synergy between its U.S. craft beverages and its Canadian cannabis business divisions. A final thought. This game of ownership musical chairs illustrates again the difficulty in knowing just who actually owns any particular brewery. As the average consumer, you have two things to help you make an informed choice. The first is the independent craft brewer seal created by the Brewers Association. To display that seal on its label, a brewer must be both small and independent. Small means brewing less than 6 million barrels per year. Independent means less than 25% of the craft brewery is owned by a beverage alcohol industry member who is not itself a craft brewer. While not every craft brewer chooses to display this seal, if you see it, you can be confident that the beer truly comes from a craft brewer. The second tool is an app called Craft Check. Using it, you can type in a brewery name or even scan a label barcode, and the app will tell you whether the beer in question is independent or owned by one of the big boys. It's not infallible. When I checked it, it had not yet been updated to reflect the sale of these brands to Tilray, but it is still a wonderful resource. It's free to download, and in my opinion, every craft beer lover should have it on their phone. It comes in pretty handy when you're standing in the package store looking at a beer you've never seen before and asking yourself that eternal question, who the heck actually makes this beer? This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna.
Knock it in, knock it out, clock it out, about to kick off the weekend. There's a stretch of black top, I ain't never seen a cop, so I'm pushing it a little past ten. Pulled a little money from the bank, put it in a tank, shined up the windshield glass. Don't know where the night might lead, ain't nowhere to be, but I gotta get there fast. There's a cold beer calling my name, feel a good time coming, got a new song humming, and the sunset's doing this thing. Feeling lucky as a seven, yeah, sometimes heaven is a pocket full of payday green. Citronella torch, yeah, you know I'm down either way. There's a chance that tonight might be the night that we I ain't ever gonna forget you. Everybody's turning it up. I got a little buzz, and I ain't even had one yet. There's a cold beer calling my name. Feel a good time coming, got a new song humming, and the sunset's doing this thing. Feeling lucky as a seven year song. September is the time for the largest beer festival of them all, Germany's Oktoberfest, plus its numerous imitators. While everyone has heard of Oktoberfest, you may not be familiar with its particulars. What began as a royal wedding celebration in 1810 has grown into the largest beer festival in the world, with about 6 million visitors each year. Normally, it's held from the last two weeks in September through the first weekend in October in Munich, the capital of Bavaria and southern Germany. The original festival was held in October, hence the name, but was moved forward into September in the 1870s in search of consistently better weather. What breweries are allowed to have their beer served at the festival is also strictly regulated. Only the six large breweries that brew beer within the city limits of Munich are allowed to deliver beer to the festival. Smaller Munich breweries and those from outside the town are strictly banned. This time of year, plenty of breweries around the world have already begun releasing their Oktoberfest-style beers. It's a popular myth that there has only ever been one distinct style of beer brewed for Oktoberfest, But the historical evidence shows that there have been many changes in the beers served at the festival. For the first 60 years or so, the then popular style of Bavarian Dunkel, a dark lager beer, seems to have been dominant. A shortage of Dunkel during a particularly hot summer in 1872 led to the introduction of the Marzen or Vienna-style lager, which was so popular that it became the dominant style of beer at the festival for over 100 years, eventually earning the name Oktoberfest style. Ironically, changing tastes in the late 20th century have meant that since 1990, all the beers served at the festival have been pale golden Hellas lagers, rather than the traditional Oktoberfest style. So what is this traditional Oktoberfest beer like? Much of the base malt is the so-called Munich malt, a highly aromatic malt which produces a light amber to nearly brown beer. It's hopped with traditional German hop varieties to produce moderate hop bitterness with little to no hop flavor, coming in at 18 to 24 international bittering units. 
Fermentation using lager yeast produces a clean, rich, toasty, and bready malt flavor with a dry finish that encourages another drink. The overall malt impression is soft, elegant, and complex with a rich aftertaste that is never cloying or heavy. If you're looking for a local example, St. Elias Brewing frequently offers this style in September, while versions from larger craft brewers like Sierra Nevada and actual imports from Germany are already available in some local liquor stores. When it comes to pairing this beer with food, you'll find that Oktoberfest works well with all sorts of hearty dishes like chili or barbecue brisket. It also pairs well with Caesar salad, macaroni and cheese, apple or pumpkin pie, and even pancakes or waffles. A more unusual pairing, but one that works especially well, is to match this German beer with the Americanized version of a classic Russian dish, beef stroganoff. The brown steak and mushroom flavors have a nice interplay with the beer's caramel malt notes. The rich and creamy sauce matches the toffee notes found in the beer, while the moderate carbonation helps lift the sauce, cleanses the palate, and makes you ready for the next bite. Whether you call it a Marzen, a Vienna Lager, or Oktoberfest, this classic German style is definitely one of the most popular fall seasonal beers out there and is certainly worth seeking out to be enjoyed. Hello, this is Charlissa Megan, known as Truth Is. And I'm her trusty sidekick, Eva Knutson. And, and we, we are, are the, the Sound Hunters. Hunters. Join us on Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. as we dig through our old mixtape collections and share our favorite eclectic musical finds. That's The Sound Hunters on Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. right here on KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. It's easy to feel the impact and complexity of Imperial Stouts and Triple IPAs. Their sensory qualities blast you with layers of malt, plus the bitter power and aromatic richness of hops. But what about lager beers like Pilsner's? You know, beers that taste like beer rather than bubblegum, fruit juice, sour candies, coffee, bourbon, or oak barrels. Pilsner's may be delicate and easy, but they're not simple. Intensity is not the same as complexity. They are not as Instagram-friendly. You'll need more than a few sips to pass judgment on a beer in such a subtle style. It takes some time to peel apart the layers. Drinkability means you can have more than one. To find that in a characterful beer is a delight. Stylistically, these beers present a small target for the brewer, so recipe choices are limited. Only the palest malts will brew a straw or golden color beer. Hops, while important, have clearly defined roles of being subtle and noble and quintessentially European in character. Lager yeast is the least flavorful of all brewing strains because it ferments cool to limit the production of yeast-specific flavors such as fruity esters. Step outside those boundaries and the beer stops being a pilsner and becomes something else. Despite these limitations, a good brewer can stay inside the box while creating something with depth and personality. Most professional brewers I know consider a perfect pilsner to be the peak of their art and craft. They know how difficult it is to brew something that is so easy to enjoy, but that, with reflection, has secrets to share. That's why pilsners are brewer's beers. As an aside, I've been a home brewer for over 30 years, but I've never turned my hand to making a pilsner. 
because I'm a realist about both my skill level and the capabilities of my home brewing equipment. To quote Detective Dirty Harry Callahan, a man's got to know his limitations. Pale beer has been brewed in various times and places over the millennia, but something special happened in 1842 in Pilsen, Bohemia, now part of the Czech Republic. The town fathers had a brewery built, and someone had the idea of combining a newly developed pale malt with a dose of Saz hops and fermenting it with lager yeast. It was a sensation. Beer styles often evolve gradually, hitting their stride over years or even decades. Not this one. The innovation, Pilsner, changed beer forever. If you're interested in the details of how it all happened, I recommend the book Pilsner by Tom Asatelli. Because they are so pale, Pilsners are highly dependent on their base malt. Pilsner-style malt is available worldwide, but there are regional differences. European Pilsner malts are usually more aromatic, but are generally the most expensive. Best Malls in Germany, for example, makes a Heidelberg malt of very low color, and along with that comes a clean, grassy hay note. For more than a century, American malting barley was bred for the needs of large breweries. What they wanted, in addition to economy, was neutral malt, a word we can interpret as bland. So North American Pilsner malt, most commonly made from Metcalf or Copeland barley strange, will have a delicate flavor, sometimes with a bit of white bread and a hint of grassiness. You won't find that malted milk aroma that many European malts have. Fortunately, growers more recently have bred new varieties that are more flavorful in the glass with craft beer in mind. Synergy from Montana State University promises and delivers a European character. Full Pint, developed by Oregon State, is described as having a fresh salted popcorn flavor, but to me it seems to be intermediate between the standard U.S. Pilsner malt and European types. Many brewers also use super pale Carapillus-type crystal malt that can add a little extra body, although it can be hard to notice the effect when you drink the beer. A few percent of Vienna or light crystal can add a nice depth and more malty sweet caramel flavors. Anything darker, Munich malt, for example, starts to work against the style with too much toasty character. Virtually all Pilsners were originally brewed with a decoction process like the rest of the lager family. The original Pilsner or Quell still uses a triple decoction mash. In the days when metal vessels were prohibitively expensive, this technique employed a wooden mash tun along with a copper kettle to heat a portion of the mash to boiling before adding it back, creating temperature steps in the mash. Because decocting involved a fixed volume of boiling mash, the temperature steps could be reliable in an age before thermometers. It's time-consuming and energy-intensive, which is why the practice is less common today, outside of some German breweries and virtually all Czech ones. It also adds a bit of color and a hint of caramel, acceptable style traits in Bohemian Pilsers. Outside of the neutral rice or corn used in American-style mass-market lagers, the use of adjuncts such as wheat or oats is rare to the point of heresy. To do so, after all, would be a violation of the Reinheitsgebot. Classic Pilsner hops are called noble, a quality that is much prized, little understood, and gerrymandered beyond any real meaning. The title is bestowed upon four regional varieties, Hallertauer Mittelfrau, Saas, Tetnang, and Spalt. 
The last three are more closely related to each other than to Hallertauer and present a clean, bright hop aroma we don't really have good words for. The classic descriptor is spicy, but to me this is just a placeholder for don't know what else to call it hoppy. Hallertauer veers much more into the herbal with hints of thyme or mint. In a crisp, super pale beer, Hallertauer can really nail its dry, refreshing character. There have been many newer hops bred all over the world from German and Czech parentage. These upgrade the classics in terms of yield, hardiness, and other agricultural characteristics, better adapting them to their new homes. Varieties such as Liberty, Saphir, Pearl, Mount Hood, Crystal, Pacifica, and others can come pretty close to the classics, but may be a bit bolder than their progenitors, so they need to be used judiciously. The whole idea of lager yeast is that it shouldn't add much of anything. Just get out of the way and let the ingredients shine. Working at the bottom end of its temperature range, the yeast produces very little in the way of fruity esters, although I've seen well-trained noses pick them out. The same goes for spicy phenols, which are rarer still. Some lagers do show a bit of sulfur, either a burnt match sulfur dioxide or a rotten eggs hydrogen sulfide. They're an expected part of lagers, but fortunately they dissipate quickly and don't detract from the experience. A long, cold conditioning adds smoothness. The result is a beer that's almost unrivaled in the beauty of appearance, its clarity of flavor, and its drinkability, or what our British friends call moorishness. It pairs acceptably with almost any food and spectacularly well with many dishes. And finally, to those who can appreciate it, it represents the pinnacle of brewing skill. For in a beer so stripped down and clean, there is little room to conceal even the slightest imperfection. Errors which might pass unnoticed in ales loaded with hops, specialty grains, and barrel aging stand out like a sore thumb in a pilsner. So this is where my contemplation has led me. While I'm not about to stop drinking IPAs, porters, stouts, and other big beers, I must tip my beer aficionado's cap to the brewers out there who have the guts to make pilsners. There are some fine pilsners produced locally here in Alaska. Midnight Sun cans its Wolfpack Pilsner. King Street does the same with its Pilsner. Denali Brewing also produces its Petersville Pilsner in cans. However, if you live on the Central Peninsula, Count yourself fortunate because, for my money, the best Pilsner in Alaska is available in Soldatna. If you have any doubt, stop into St. Elias Brewing Company and sample their Czech Pilsner. Fresh Pilsner is the best Pilsner, and it doesn't get any fresher than that. Money matters, and every week on Econ 919, we're breaking down the peninsula's biggest economic issues of the day from stories about fishing. A lot of these people, they're hurting. Farming. Which I've always been interested in the farm. To the decisions Alaskans make about their lives every day. I'm gonna be putting some money into my truck and fixing my truck. Making sense of all the dollars and cents every Friday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. here on KDLL. Hello and welcome back to Drink on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. One of the things I'm frequently asked as a beer writer is, what's your favorite beer? I usually answer with the quip, the one that's in my hand right now. 
That's my oh-so-clever way of saying that craft beer is much too complex and varied a thing for me to actually have a single favorite choice, a single beer that would be best for all occasions, moods, food pairings, and seasons conceivable. Plus, a real beer hunter is always hoping that the next beer they try will be even better than the last. So no, I don't have a favorite beer. However, there is a fun mental game in this same vein that we serious beer lovers play amongst ourselves. It's called Desert Island Six Pack. The basic idea is simple. You've been shipwrecked on an island and have no prospect of ever being rescued. Luckily, the ship you were on was well stocked with beer, enough to last the rest of your life. However, there are only six different beers on the ship. So, if you could only drink six different beers for the rest of your life, what would they be? In some versions, there are no rules limiting your choices. In my version, all the beers you choose must be currently commercially available, which eliminates home brews and discontinued beers, and must be sold in either cans or bottles, which eliminates a host of draft-only beers and cast-conditioned versions of British ales. I use those rules because the beers are supposed to have been on your ship, after all. Observing these strictures, here is my current Desert Island six-pack. Beer number one, Saison Dupont Villet Provision. This classic beer has been in my island six-pack since the first time I ever heard of this game, and I can't imagine that will ever be replaced by another beer. It's the beer which more or less established the ideal of the Belgian Saison, and it continues to be an exemplar of the best of that style today. As a style, Saisons are some of the most unpredictable and artisanal brews produced in Belgium. And given some of the other funky styles that nation is known for, that's really saying something. Saisons, which literally means season, were originally farmhouse beers, brewed in March to last through the hot summer months when brewing was impossible in the days before refrigeration. They had to have enough alcohol and hops to last, yet still be thirst-quenching for the farmhands who would be drinking them in the summer months. Bottled in leftover wine bottles, they would have been bottle-conditioned, with the living yeast continuing to work throughout the months of cellaring. This old-fashioned style of beer had almost died out in Belgium when it was discovered by the late great beer writer Michael Jackson, who almost single-handedly brought them onto the world stage. One of the six or seven Belgian breweries still producing classic saisons is the Brasserie Dupont, which is also still a working farm. Saison Dupont Ville Provision is their flagship brew, and it's a dry, effervescent, and hoppy delight. It's incredibly refreshing and pairs exceptionally well with almost any food. Whenever I'm reduced to eating on my island, it will go down better with a Saison Dupont. Beer number two. Orval. Brewed by the Trappist monks at the Abbey Notre Dame de Orval in Belgium, Orval is unique even in the rarefied company of Trappist ales. While most Trappist breweries make two or even three different beers, the monks at Orval produce only one. It pours a golden orange color with a massive white head. Fresh, it's wonderfully crisp and hoppy, but the true magic comes with a bit of time in the cellar. That's because the monks dose each bottle with Brettanomyces yeast, which over time consumes the residual sugars, eventually producing a tremendously dry beer laced with the semi-sour horse blanket notes that Brett is famous for. 
It takes about a year, but then again, I'll have plenty of time to wait on my lonely island. Beer number three, Midnight Sun Brewing's Ho Imperial IPA. Of course, there has to be a local IPA somewhere in my six-pack, and I agonize quite a bit over which one to include. There are so many excellent ones out there, and I rotate the ones in my beer fridge frequently, depending on what I'm in the mood for at any given time. However, in the end, I kept coming back to Ho Imperial IPA. This beer is one of Midnight Sun's rotating seasonals and is a more muscular version of their Sakai Red IPA. I drink an awful lot of Sakai Red and considered selecting it, but in the end decided to go with its bigger, beefier cousin. Ho weighs in at a hefty 8% alcohol by volume and 85 international bidding units as compared to Sakai Red's 5.7% and 70, respectively. The folks at Midnight Sun achieved the increase in strength by adding fun stuff such as brown sugar, maple syrup, honey, and juniper berries. The same hops are used, Centennial, Cascade, and Simcoe, but at a more generous rate to balance the heftier grain bill. The end result is an exceptional beer with a wonderful mouthfeel and a massive hop bitterness and aroma. This beer is a wonderful drink on a long, snowy evening by the fire, assuming the island I'm stranded on gets snow. Beer number four, Sierra Nevada's Bigfoot Barley Wine. My six-pack had to include a barley wine. After all, I might need to disinfect a wound or something. Like IPAs, there are a ton of wonderful barley wines out there, but Bigfoot was one of the first I ever tasted, and it remains one of the best American-style barley wines out there. Once upon a time, the early 90s, when I was living in the beer wasteland, which Hawaii once was, March was one of the best times of the year. Why? Because that's when Sierra Nevada Brewing Company released their Bigfoot barley wine style ale each year. In our current state of craft beer grace, it's easy to forget what a big deal having an American-style barley wine on the shelves was then. Today, filing a barley wine on the shelf or even on tap at a local brew pub isn't very tough. But 30 years ago, Bigfoot was often the only one available. So when it hit the shelves, word would spread around and all the serious beer geeks would load up. We all bought at least a case, often two or three, which would then have to last us through the entire year. Plus, we always tried to sell her a bottle or two for a couple years just to see how it would change. Fast forward to today. While Bigfoot might no longer be the only game in town, it's still an absolute classic American barley wine. Dosed with massive amounts of classic Northwest hops, Chinooks, Cascades, and Centennials, it charges in with 90 international bittering units to balance its hefty 9.6% alcohol by volume. Whenever I open a bottle and pour it into a snifter, the hop aroma hits my nose like the perfume of a long-lost love. While I'm stuck on the island, I won't be getting the annual new release, so I'll just have to keep enjoying the single vintage and watching the flavors change as the beer matures over time. Beer number five, Young Special London Ale. In picking this beer, I am sailing perilously close to violating my rules, as I don't think it can be found for sale in the U.S. these days. It certainly can't be found in Alaska. I know, I've tried, even going so far as to contact distributors to ask if they could bring it in for me. Even when I lived in London, finding bottles of it wasn't exactly easy, but I think it is still available there, so technically I can choose it. 
Since I'm going to all this trouble to squeeze it onto my list, you might surmise that it's a very special beer for me, and you would be right. Young's Special London Ale is the name given to their cast condition export ale when bottled. This beer is one of the few true English IPAs to survive from the golden age of the mid-19th century. Bottle-conditioned, hoppy, earthy, and strong at 6.4%. For my taste, it's the finest bottled beer Britain has ever produced, hands down. Young's was brewed at the Ram Brewery in the Wandsworth region of London. Located on the River Thames, beer has been brewed at that site since at least 1576. It was the oldest continually operating brewery in Britain. I toured it twice during my stint in London, and it was a magical place. They still delivered casks to nearby pubs via horse-drawn drays, with the horses, along with the brewery's namesake mascot, a ram, stabled at the brewery. The brewery itself was a mix of old and new, with fascinating pieces of industrial archaeology, like a steam engine dating from 1835, scattered about. Unfortunately for beer lovers everywhere, Young's is a publicly owned company, so at the height of the housing bubble in Britain, the riverfront land it sat on was more valuable than the beer it produced and the history it represented. Sold off for 450 million pounds, about $800 million at the time, the brewery closed on the 25th of September 2006, a sad end to the 430 years of brewing at the Ram Brewery. Young's is still being brewed and bottled elsewhere, so I can have it on my list, even if I can't get it here in Alaska. Come to think of it, getting to drink Young's again might be worth being shipwrecked. Beer number six, Traquair House Ale. There's an, the old saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Nothing illustrates that better than the final beer in my six-pack. I've been drinking Troy Crow House Ale whenever I could get it since 1989. This is an absolutely wonderful Scotch ale from the Troy Crow House Brewery, which is located in the oldest inhabited house in Scotland. It dates back to 1107. Until the early 1900s, every large castle or manor house in Britain would have had its own brewery on the premises. The one at Traquair House stood idle from sometime in the early 1800s until 1965, when it was discovered by the late Peter Maxwell Stewart, the 20th Laird of Traquair. He restarted the brewery and managed it until his death in 1990. Now it's overseen by his daughter, Catherine Maxwell Stewart. The house ale is brewed in the style of a strong Scotch ale and pours with moderate carbonation, producing a tan head that dissipates fairly quickly but leaves a nice lacing on the glass. Its color is very dark ruby or reddish gold, and on the palate, it's velvety smooth and very rich. You can taste a hint of the 7.2% alcohol by volume on the tongue, as well as the slightest suggestion of peat smoke. The finish is dry, enticing you to take another sip. Absolutely true to style, it's one of the classic strong scotch ales in the world today. Given that this style has always been one of my personal favorites, I had to include one. Sadly, my absolute favorite of all time, Caledonian Brewing's Edinburgh Strong Ale, is no longer produced, so it's ineligible for inclusion. Well, there you have it, my Desert Island six-pack, at least as it stands today. That's one of the great things about the six-pack. It's always subject to change, 
if you encounter a new and better beer tomorrow. Well, that wraps it up for this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I hope you've enjoyed our show. This month's beer quote is from author E. Mann, war correspondent, who, like the better-known Edward R. Murrow, broadcast from London during the German Blitz in late 1940. There is a unique quality about beer in that it both soothes and stimulates. In its infinite variety, from the lightest of the light lagers through the noblest of bitters and stouts to the heaviest of ales, a choice can be made that will please any palate, suit any climate, fit any occasion, and blend with any dish. That's it for this month. Until next time, cheers. Be the word.